have you added to our church body. Welcome as members. Um, we do this, we have a welcome time for members because we believe that joining a church body is significant. Um, it makes a major difference in the life of this church and in all of our lives as we are joined together as one body united on the same mission together to, to be disciples of Jesus who are growing as disciples and making disciples. So thanks for doing that. And if you're a member, if you're a visitor here and you've not yet become a member, you can talk to Aaron and he can tell you all about the process of how we, um, what we have to become members. And we would love to have you join with us. If you haven't found a church, we would love to help you do that. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are continuing in our series in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. As, as Aaron mentioned, he was writing to a church that was actually divided. He was writing to a church that had become separated and he was writing to, to bring correction. He was writing to a church that they were exercising all kinds of spiritual gifts. They were rich in a diversity of gifts. He applauds that at the very beginning of the letter, letter and then he explains that he wants them to eagerly desire gifts and now we come to this chapter, what's often known as the love chapter. So let's read this together. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, this description of love so often is not like us. But thank you that this description of love is like you. And because of that, we can have hope as we approach a passage like this this morning that is, is filled with convicting statements about what love is. When we compare ourselves to this mirror, Lord, we, we find that we do not look like the mirror far too often. But God, thank you that, that your word exposes us and lays us bare so that we might be conformed and made into your image and that there is hope because you are love. So God, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that you would bring the gift of conviction, that you would bring the gift of, of repentance, and that, Lord, you would bring change as well. Would you bring the gift of hope and faith? How would you impart this by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's more impressive to you? 
Think about this for real. What's more impressive to you? Somebody who is incredibly gifted or somebody who is quietly loving? What's really more impressive to you? Not what do you think should be more impressive to you, but what is more impressive to you? Who's more spiritually mature? Or maybe who do you think of as more spiritually mature? Those who are incredibly gifted in so many ways or those who are loving? What about somebody who has more spectacular speaking-related gifts and they're, they're, they're gifted in oratory or they're, they're gifted in their logic, their rhetoric, they're, they're gifted in presentation, they can tell great stories. Is, is that more impressive or is it more impressive to be loving? Not what do we know is true, but what do we actually think? How do we react to those gifts? Surely mark of, of somebody being more mature is somebody being more impressive, right? Surely people who are more impressive and more gifted are more valuable to the body. What about somebody who's amazingly and spectacularly wise? You ever know anybody like that? They're just amazingly wise. What if they understand all the mysteries of the universe? What if they they comprehend everything about every subject there is? Isn't that more impressive than somebody who's just loving? Who do you think of as spiritually mature and why? There was a guy named Steve Jobs who died a few years ago. He was a, a brilliant businessman. He was known as for his creative genius being behind the, the success of what is Apple today. He oversaw, he inspired the creativity that, that came out with devices like the iPhone, which most of us have in our pockets or some kind of iDevice. And if you don't and you have a competitor, then he spurred that on really through those devices. He's innovative, he pressed people hard to excel, he made one of the most monetarily valuable companies in the world. But he was widely known not to be the nicest person. Many are quick to applaud his brilliance and think what an incredible person he was, but then quickly excuse away all of his foibles when he was really an unloving, not kind person. Because after all, his genius made all those things excusable, right? That's what we can do in our own lives. That's what we can do when we think of other people who have great genius and we can worship that instead of seeing what's really valuable and what's really spiritually mature. After all, a lack of love is no big deal if you have a genius, right? That's what the people in Corinth acted like. The people in Corinth, they valued what was really impressive. They thought that oratory and rhetoric and all these great skills, that was what really gave you a higher status or belonging to a certain group gave you a higher status or following an impressive preacher or teacher or being a part of their tribe. That made you impressive too and that's what the people of Corinth thought. They thought that if you had these expressive, more public gifts or these gifts that were amazing or, or seemingly more spectacular, if you had those gifts, then that was more valuable and they denigrated those lesser things like serving and those lesser gifts that didn't seem as impressive. Paul commends them for being rich in Christ and abounding with, with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. He doesn't downplay all those gifts. He encourages them. They weren't lacking. He told them in in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. The church was full of gifted individuals. 
They had smart teachers, debaters, scribes. They, they excelled in worldly wisdom and discernment. He, he told us in, in, in the first chapter, he says, were, but, but here's the problem. They were divided and they were quarreling. These same spiritual gifts that he praises them for were some of the things that divided them, that they competed with. But you know what he does? He doesn't discourage their pursuit of the spiritual gifts, which is kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy that if you came into a church or an organization and, and they were bragging about these gifts, they're boasting, and they were divided over these things, you might say, hey, it's like, shut that down a little because these are like too tempting for you. These are difficult. Stop it. Just pause for now, and, and we'll come back to that later, but he doesn't do that. Actually, in the, in the previous chapter, he talks about the diversity of gifts, and he, he tells them that they need to value other members of the body, but, but then at the very end of the chapter, he tells them, eagerly desire the higher gifts and you would think wait a minute Paul isn't that actually going against what you're trying to do here and, and that would be true if he ended there but he doesn't he didn't end there and so it, it, this this love chapter it comes in the context of Paul bringing correction to a church a church divided but he still encourages them. At the end of chapter 31, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Would you have given that advice? Would you have given that advice to that church in that day? An environment where people were using supernatural, seemingly more spectacular gifts to divide, would you encourage them to earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I think today, a lot of us don't encourage that because like, whoa, all those mistakes that you might make. But, but Paul brings some divine guidance, some, some divine guardrails, if you will. He says, eagerly desire the higher gifts. And at the end of chapter 12, he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. I'll show you a still more excellent way. And then that's the context that we have, chapter 13, this great love chapter. What's he trying to tell them? He's trying to tell them that love is the more excellent way. That's the, the big idea of these verses, that, that love is a more excellent way. It's a more excellent way to practice the gifts. It's a more excellent way to do church. Back in 1986, there was a movie called Karate Kid 2. I'm not endorsing the movie. I was a child of the 80s, though, so, so I saw it. And it came out, and there was a theme song of the movie. Anybody remember the theme song of the movie? No? Let's, that might be good. It was called The Glory of Love by Peter Cetera. And um, he, there's a, this main character in the song, and there's a line that says, you know, I am a man who will fight for your honor. I'll be the hero you're dreaming of. We'll, we'll live forever knowing together that we did it all for the glory of love. It was an inspiring song. It actually hit the, the top of the Billboard Top 100. It put, put forward the idea of doing everything out of love. And it's this grand, noble ambition and desire. It's this, some, this desire we all have in the human heart for that kind of self-sacrificial, heroic love that we have. And love is glorious. It inspires this, this wonderful emotion, and that's good. And this chapter it definitely elevates the glory of love. And if you just read it on his own, you think, oh my goodness, what a beautiful passage. We should use this in every wedding we do. <laughs> Somebody was asked to pick the most famous chapter on love in the Bible. This would be it. It's the most often quoted passage on love. 
But you know what Paul's doing? He's not giving them a beautiful exposition on love only. He's correcting them. The behavior and attitudes that Paul is confronting and correcting in Corinth, it's one of dissension, division, and strife, and jealousy. And if you've been reading the book or the letter to the Corinthians so far, all through, um, you would see that they are not this. So why did he put this here? He's saying, oh, you, you've been acting this way. Let me show you a more excellent way. And there's a tone here that often we read this as this glorious tone. And, and actually, Paul, what he's doing is he is correcting all of those very things that they were guilty of by saying, you're like this and love is like this. And it would have been very pointed for them. They think they're spiritually mature, but someone who has the greatest gifts without love, Paul tells them, would just be a noisy, clanging, good for nothing. That's what he says. You're just noise? You're good for nothing if you don't have love? You have nothing? You think you have all these gifts? You have nothing if you don't have love. You think you have these wonderful speaking, intelligent gifts that sound so beautiful? You, if you don't have love, you're just a noisy gong. If, if you think that, that all your gifts make you somebody, if you don't have love, you are nothing. Changes the tone a bit, doesn't it? I think the, the first big idea we see in the first three verses really is that, that if you don't have love, you're nothing. And I didn't make those words up. That's what Paul's saying. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. Then he says later, in, in, in verse 2, he says, I am nothing. And then he says, I gain nothing. I'm just this noisy nothing who gains nothing if I don't have love. If you don't have love, you're nothing. This is shocking read, isn't it? I can't imagine how they must have read this, this passage or heard this passage. See, they, when they listened to it in church, uh, it would have been the entire letter originally, at least the first time, read out loud to them. And so they're listening to this letter, and Paul's hammering them and hammering and hammering them and correcting them for all these things. And then he says, and by the way, all these things you are, love is not. And if you don't have love, you're, you are not. And then he writes and he counters all of the notions. He says, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but I don't have love, then it's not really an impressive gift. They thought this gift was so impressive, but they're exercising it unlovingly. And, and he even uses the first person. Did you notice that? He says, I, if I don't. And what he's kind of getting across to him is, I, the apostle Paul, if, if I, the apostle to the Gentiles, I, the one who kicked things off for the church in Corinth, I, the one who has all these spiritual gifts, if, if I am like this and not loving, then I'm just a gong. And I'm glad that in worship on Sunday mornings, we don't have a gong. Why is that? It's, 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 it's noise, but it's not helpful. It's distracting. If in the middle of preaching you hear this gong, it would be discordant. Or a clanging cymbal. We do have cymbals, but they're not, not discordant, clanging cymbals. It's actually the, the word there for is a wailing cymbal. They used to have a battle cry as they went into battle. Go, la, 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 la. It's kind of that, that notion of this, this wailing, this, this discordant, frightening noise. And he says no matter how lofty the gift is, whether it's a speaking gift or the tongues of men or even the tongues of angels, 
So whether they thought that speaking in tongues was different tongues of men or whether that was a different language of angels, both are possibilities here. He says, but you might have those gifts, but the reality is if you don't have love, then those great speaking tongue gifts that's just a loud clanging gong and noise, it's not impressive. The original language actually can be say, I, it's going to be translated as I have become like a clanging gong. If I have all these great gifts, but I don't have love, I've become something. It's actually transformed me in such a way, if I'm unloving, that I've just become this noise. I've not become great, I've become an obnoxious noise. Instead of heavenly speech, it's this loud gong that they would have rang in the earthly temples in Corinth. So I can imagine those who were bragging about their gift of tongues, they were bragging about their, their prophetic gifts, they would have been a little shocked at this point. If Paul says, if you have all these gifts, if you have the tongues of men and angels, but you don't have love, you just noise. But he doesn't let up. You see, the tone here would have, would have hit them pretty hard. They would have been experiencing some conviction probably by now. And he's pretty crystal clear. He says, if I have prophetic powers, if, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I am so prophetic that I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, all secrets of the universe, if somebody possessed those kinds of prophetic powers that could understand all mysteries and knowledge, it would be pretty impressive, wouldn't it be? Elijah, he was bordering on a lot of impressive prophetic powers, but even not to the height that Paul talks about, understanding all mysteries, understanding all knowledge. There's only one man who walked the earth who had all that. It was Jesus. But Elijah, he prophesied against King Ahab, and he says, there's not going to be any more rain until I say so. That's prophetic powers, right? And, and Paul says, if I have all prophetic powers, greater than Elijah... If I can command the rain to stop, if I say, hey, you know what? It's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. I'm not giving you a time frame, just when I say it. And he says, if I have all prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries, all knowledge, you know, think about what, what the Bible said of King Solomon in 1 Kings 4. It says, and God gave Solomon wisdom, exceeding deep, exceedingly deep insight, understanding beyond all measure, like the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than that of all the men of the east. Greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men. I can only imagine that kind of wisdom, the kind of understanding and insight that King Solomon had. And Paul says, if I had all that and more, if I don't have the gift of love, if I don't walk in love, then he says, it's, it's worthless. I wonder if that's how the church then thought of brilliant individuals. I wonder if it's how the church today thinks of brilliant theologians. People who understand all kinds of mysteries, all kinds of knowledge. And before we think of others, maybe we should consider our own selves. What do we value most highly? You find yourself seeing it as your God-given prophetic gift to set people on the right theological path. Is that impressive? Were you motivated by love for the people around you and love for God? You find yourself thinking more often about, about how right you are than learning from others that may be even less more mature than you, but they're actually loving? 
They might not have all the theological understanding and knowledge and insight, but are they more loving and which one's more mature? You see, you can actually inform people about theology and people can learn and grow there, but it's, it's a lot harder to love. He says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, well, what is he talking about? He's talking about the kind of faith that, that Jesus spoke of in, in Matthew 21, 21. When Jesus said, he said, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and you don't doubt, but you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And Paul says, even if I have this kind of faith but have not love, he says, I am nothing. Do you notice he doesn't say, you know, I... I I'm not very good, I'm not very impressive. He doesn't say that. He says, if you don't have love, I am nothing. I'm worthless without love. I'm a gong, I am nothing. I think I've become something by these spiritual gifts and what's impressive, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. He completely, you see what he's doing here? He's completely countering their basis for their identity, which is in their status or their spiritual gifts or their abilities or their service. He says, you can have all those things and you think you're something because that if you don't have love, I'm nothing. Ouch. And then he says, if I give away. So then he shifts from the seemingly more spectacular gifts to what, what is seemingly, okay, philanthropic or these, these things that we really applaud in, in so many people. He says, if I give away all that I have. Talk about Generosity. It's, you know, it's possible for people to be wrongly motivated and be generous. They can, they can be, maybe they get a tax deduction or somehow get, get worth or standing before God to impress others, to be highly esteemed, and yet not be motivated by love. He says, if I have, give away all that I have. Or, or maybe even, even more than that, if I give up my body to, to be burned, if that's the, the correct rendering there. If I give my body to be burned, give away my life, but you know what? People can give their lives and suicide bombers give their lives all the time and it's not out of love. They gain nothing. I like the way that D.A. Carson put it. He says, in this divine mathematics, five minus one equals zero. You can have all these things, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. Contrary to the gifts and the service making it more impressive, he says, without love, you're good, you are a good for nothing. That's how... That's how direct he's being. You're gong, you are nothing, you have nothing. Zero. Wow, Paul, that's, that's not so kind, is it? Well, he actually is being loving because he's trying to help them see what love is and grow. He actually wants them to exercise their spiritual gifts rightly out of the context of love. Paul isn't saying the spiritual gifts are useless. No, he's not, actually. He's, he's taking this pause in the middle of things because but they, they think that spiritual gifts make them something. He says, I want you to eagerly desire them, but do it in the right context, the context of love. And then he's going to come back in 14, as soon as he's done this chapter on love, which we're going to finish up next week. He's gonna, we're going to come back two weeks from now, and he's going to talk about, hey, and eagerly desire those spiritual gifts in the context of love. This, this verse isn't just somehow from some other author inserted here. No, this is a flow. Paul's argument flow is continuous here. And he's going to encourage them to eagerly desire the gifts two more times, but do it in the context of love. But it's, it's important to notice that Paul isn't being mushy here. He's not talking about only a sentimental list of feelings. It's not that love doesn't include sentimental feelings. It does. 
and that's good, right? But love isn't merely described by feelings. Did you know, look down here in verses four to four six. He, he doesn't describe love by feelings here. Did you notice there's no feelings orientation in this description of love? Look down your Bibles. What's he trying to say? He's trying to show us that love is really demonstrated or it isn't really love. That's the second idea he's trying to get across. Love, love is really demonstrated or it isn't really love. Now, now, don't confuse what I'm saying. Love is not mere behaviorism, okay? So you can't pretend. But, but behavior is an outflow of our hearts. Good behavior doesn't, doesn't mean that we're loving, but, but a loving motivation will be seen in loving behavior. You, that's what Jesus said too. Did you know that? He says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. He doesn't say keeping commandments makes him love you. Don't, don't confuse that. But he says, if you do love me, if you have love for me, then you will keep my commandments. And, and the, the flip side is, if you're not keeping his commandments, then you may not really love him. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, love is really demonstrated or it isn't really love. And he tells them what love looks like. He says, love is patient and kind. If you say you love somebody, but you're not loving in your thoughts, in your actions, your behavior towards them, and he's saying you're not really loving. The church in Corinth, they might have responded to those first three verses of Paul, and they would have said, well, well Paul, we, we do love each other. And Paul says, Really? Love's patient. You couldn't even wait for each other at the communion meal. Love's kind. Doesn't look too kind when you're suing each other. And the way he writes, it's almost as if love's a person, right? He doesn't say love, a person who displays love is or is not those things. He says love itself is defined by these. This is objectively what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love waits for somebody else and considers their needs. Doesn't just go ahead and get full and drunk while people are working and, and we can't wait to, for them to get off work. That's, that's what was happening in Corinthians 11. It's the kind of patience that overlooks offenses. It's the kind of patience that, that it, when being wronged or, or injured doesn't retaliate. Doesn't take somebody else to court. And being patient with others like that, it's hard, isn't it? When somebody else is insensitive, somebody says something hurtful, being patient and kind and not returning in kind? The world says retaliate, lash out, get even. Love says be patient, be kind. And the word for kindness that Paul uses, it's the same word that is used all throughout the New Testament of God's behavior. And the word that, that Paul used in Romans, in Romans 2, 4, he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's this, this idea of both what we consider kind, but also merciful. And you know, earlier in this letter, Paul has confronted them for a lot of things, and he confronted them for being boastful, too. He confronted them for being arrogant, for, for envying each other. So what does he say? He says, love is not like you've been. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. And he's just told them, and they would have just heard this letter letter, letter read, saying that you're envious, you're jealous, you're, you're arrogant, you're boasting. In, in, a, 
chapter 3, he, he, can, he corrects them for being full of jealousy and strife, and he commands them not to boast in men in chapter 3. He says in, in Corinthians 4, 6, he says, you're puffed up in favor of one against another. In, in 4, 7, he says that they were boasting as if they had received what God, not received what God had given them. In 4, 18 and 19, Paul wrote that, that some were arrogant as though he wasn't coming to them. In chapter 8, he says, there was a danger of them being puffed up by a whole lot of knowledge. He says, love is not like that. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. Is that true for you? Do you like to tell people about your great biblical understanding or how much you studied a particular passage or topic? When somebody has a wrong understanding, are you really quick? Well, I've studied this passage a lot, and here's what I think about this. Oh, love doesn't boast. You proud of what you know? Paul says love's not arrogant. And he says love's not rude. It doesn't, it doesn't just mean what we think of as rudeness. It means not, not, not acting unbecomingly or improperly. And Paul used the same word earlier in the letter in, in chapter 7 and verse 36. And he says that a man would be acting unbecomingly or rudely when he stirs up a woman's affections and then he refuses to do what's right by her. He acted in an unbecoming way, in an improper way. And you know, our love, it's often revealed in how we speak and how we treat those we claim to love, isn't it? Man, I I don't like this passage very much. I I don't. I mean, I I love it. I don't like it. I love it as God's word. It penetrates to our hearts and minds. But I don't like it because it's hard. It's convicting. You know, I, I generally know better than to act rudely and speak rudely to people in church, generally. Unless I'm taking steroids or something, you know. When I'm inconvenienced at the drive-through, though, when somebody provides poor customer service, or when a family member does something that inconveniences me or puts me out, then my rudeness is exposed. And so far, I, I know that all these descriptions of what love are, but when I come to this one, I'm like, "Oh, that's that's gross. I don't like that one." You know, I look back with shame back from when I was single of how rude I was to roommates in the past, but I don't have to look past this week. You see evidence of rudeness or impatience or unkindness often to those we claim to love the most. How about you? Does patience and kindness describe us? Or do we see envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness in our lives, whether we express it externally or not? Paul's about to bring the heat even more, and he continues by saying that love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Oh, Paul, why do you have to be so specific? I'd like my own way. You know, sometimes I think it, it's the best way, and it might be. But to insist on our own way is not loving. Did you notice he immediately follows up by saying it's not irritable? Why does he do that? Why do you think he does that? Why does he say love doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable? Why? Because we get irritable when we don't get our own way, right? You ever, you ever get irritable when you don't get your own way? Anybody here, come on, can anybody else say they get irritable and you don't get your own way? Well, the Bible would say that, so the ones who didn't raise your hands, you just don't know that. We get irritable when we don't get our own way. And you know what happens when we get irritable like that, when we don't get our own way consistently and we keep a record of those things? We can become resentful. He says, oh, love doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. And by the way, it doesn't let it grow. It, it forgets those wrongs. It doesn't keep a record of those wrongs. It doesn't become resentful, keeping a record of wrongs. 
You're at a time where you don't get your own way and you get a little touchy or you got a little grouchy, anger is smoldering under the surface, you're ready to blow at the slightest infraction. And that's what a lot of marriages do. They don't communicate, they don't, they don't get rid of that irritation, they don't talk about it, they don't ask forgiveness for those little irritations because it, whether you admit it or not, we all irritate each other a little bit. Even the best of marriages, you can irritate each other. But what will happen if we let the irritation grow, well, bitterness, resentment can grow, keeping a record of wrongs. If, if you don't say anything and you think, we've got a great marriage, we never argue, then I would wonder, do you really have a great marriage? Do you know each other? Maybe you do. I'm not encouraging argument. <laughs> but boy, if we're real with each other, you have two real people living together who are really not the same person, even though we're one in Christ, we're not exactly alike. If you say you've forgiven somebody and yet you're quick to remember everything they've ever done against you, you might not have forgiven them. You might really be resentful. He says love's not like that. Love doesn't keep this record of wrongs and stack them up against someone else so that you begin to have these resentful feelings. Whenever you see that person, you're like, oh, I don't want to see them. I don't want to be around them. You ever had that? You go into Costco and you're like, oh, there's that person. I, can't, I don't want to see them. I'm going to go to another aisle. Come on. We've all, we've all done that, all right? And if you haven't, I'm sorry. It's just me. And then he goes on. He says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Chapter 5, he had corrected them. He says, they are tolerating wrongdoing and it's in the kind of sexual immorality that not even the the pagans would tolerate they're effectively rejoicing in wrongdoing they're they're not rejoicing with the truth they're not speaking the truth i think he's also getting at the fact that that love doesn't take glee in someone else's misfortunes either you ever done that you ever taken glee in someone in, in wrongdoing and something bad happening you know, I've used the illustration before, somebody's tailgating you on the highway, and then they, they whip around you, cut you off, and they fly down the highway. Then a mile later, you see them pulled over, and you're like, yes! That's good. They got what's coming to them. As if we don't have that coming to us, right? I, I like the way C.K. Barrett put it. He says, love does not seek to make itself distinctive by tracking down and pointing out what's wrong. It gladly sinks its own identity to rejoice with others at what is right. It doesn't track down and point out what's wrong. It, it gladly sinks or puts down its own identity to rejoice with others at what's right. You know, just think what, what might be another form of, of wrong, rejoicing and wrongdoing. Maybe it's, it's gossip because I've got this juicy tidbit of what somebody did wrong and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retell that. That's rejoicing and wrongdoing, Right? It's not rejoicing with the truth where somebody has actually obeyed God and is highlighting those other things. Love rejoices over what's right in somebody else's life. And then he says, love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And by now you're thinking, wow, do I bear all things? Do I believe all things? Do I hope all things? Do I endure all things? And actually that word for, for all, if you look at it adverbally, it can be translated as always. Otherwise, it could be said that this is what love does all the time or this is what love does continually. You see, they, they didn't believe they needed each other. They weren't always bearing with each other. They weren't believing the best about each other. They weren't hoping for the best about each other. They weren't enduring 
all of each other's foibles and failings and faults. And Paul here is saying love has no limits. It never stops bearing. It doesn't lose faith. He's not saying love's gullible, that love believes everything's true. No. Love always believes. It, love believes all things in the sense that it never loses faith. It hopes all things. It doesn't mean that love is blind. It means that love never loses hope. It never stops enduring. It puts up and holds fast in a storm. That's what love looks like. I can imagine when the church in Corinth, they heard these verses being read right after the first 12 chapters with no chapter breaks where the logic of his argument is flowing and it's clear that they were convicted, how they were viewing each other and their gifts and Christian maturity did not reflect this. That's the effect this passage is supposed to have on them and maybe on us too. Imagine they were deeply convicted about how they had not been viewing love as indispensable. We can dispense with love as long as we have these gifts. We, we have our identity in all these gifts and things and status and service. And he says, no, if you don't have love, you're, you're gone. You don't have anything, you're nothing. Love's a more excellent way. But you know what? I don't think Paul's trying to beat them up. He, he is lovingly bringing God's word to bear so they can experience conviction, so they can repent, so they can change, so they can grow, so they can exercise the spiritual gifts in a way that's going to make the church flourish and truly reach the world and make disciples and be effective in that. You see, the lack of love actually stunted their growth in maturity, he wants to pursue love in order to build up the body so the whole body might grow. What about us? How do we respond to verses like these? Are you just bummed out now? Like, whoa, I read all the descriptions about love and this is not me. You know, you could respond one way. You could respond with discouragement or despair and many of us might have been feeling those things so far. Or you can respond with hope. And, and how do you do that? Because I, I don't know anybody who can say, all these things are what love is, and they can say, I am always those things. I'm, I'm always those things. <laughs> At the end of that movie, I mentioned in the beginning, Credit Kid 2, the main character, Daniel LaRusso, he doesn't give all for the glory of love. That's the irony in that, the theme song of the whole movie. He actually doesn't stay there in Okinawa because she wants to be a dancer and he wants to go back to California, so he doesn't give up everything for love. He wasn't really a hero. He didn't sacrifice for love. None of us love the way we should either. All of us have fallen short. But that's why Jesus came. He came, and, and get this, because God so loved the sinful world that was hostile and hating him that he sent his only son to come and live and die for us. Jesus is the only hero. He's the only true knight in shining armor. He's the, he's the one who truly came and truly gave it all for the glory of love. Jesus epitomized love because he defines love. He is love. He was patient. Listen to what Jesus was. He was patient. His disciples took a lot of patience and so did everyone who didn't immediately bow down and obey him and see that he was the Messiah. All the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law, they should have seen that, and yet he was patient and kind. He didn't envy. He didn't boast. He had a lot to, to be boastful about, by the way. The only person who could have boasted was Christ. 
And yet he didn't boast. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't rude. He didn't insist on his own way, which is shocking. Because his way was right and is right. He wasn't irritable. He wasn't resentful. When he looked across the courtyard and heard Peter deny him for the third time, and they locked eyes, he didn't resent Peter. He didn't hold it against him. And he doesn't hold our wrongs against us. Why? Because he, he died for them. They've already been paid for. He didn't rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoiced in the truth. He is the truth. He, he bore all things. Jesus had faith and believed in and through all things always. Jesus always hoped. Jesus always endured to the very end. This is really a descriptor of Christ. And then you see, well, what's Paul doing? Well, he's actually hoping that they'll get this connection because he, at the beginning of the letter he tells them that he only preaches Christ and him crucified. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's doing still. On the cross, Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our hatred, all of our unloving, unkind, impatient, selfish, self-centered, self-righteous, irritable, resentful, proud, jealous, arrogant, rude behavior. But here's, here's something really neat. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful. And he's just to forgive us our sins and make us clean from unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one who takes away the Father's wrath from us for our sins and the sins of others. But you might be thinking, how can we love this way? And in John 4, 15 to 19, it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. If, if, if this is your good confession, that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you, this is where your faith, your hope, your belief is, and I'm not saying perfectly, but this is where you're, you're desiring to be, here's the truth, God abides in him, and he in, in God. So we've come to know... And to believe the love that God has for us. This is how, how our change of behavior begins. We believe the love that God has for us. He's our example. He is love. He says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. What he's saying here is, if we understand the love of God for us, if we abide in God's love, the love of God is perfected or made perfect, made complete in us. So we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. God loved us because he's love. And he loved us not because of our loveliness or worth or value or perfections. He loved us because of who he is. This is not a human virtue. We can love like this, though, if we're in Christ and Christ is in us through the Spirit. We can be sure that we're in Christ by pursuing love like this. Amen? Let's, let's do that. Let's commit to growing as his disciples so that we can go and make disciples relying on his love. Let's pray and ask the band to come up and we'll close the song.